A warning. This episode features discussions of murder and gore that may be disturbing for some listeners. Today's mystery ties directly to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. We advise caution for listeners under 13. If you're interested in learning more about the Kennedy assassination or assassinations in general, we'd recommend ParCast's newest podcast, Assassinations. The first three episodes cover the death of President Kennedy, and they're available now wherever you listen to podcasts. On November 22, 1963, three gunshots rang out in Dallas, Texas, and changed the world forever. The assassination of U.S. President John F. Kennedy ushered in a new era of uncertainty, distrust, and conspiracy theories. Had one lone gunman really killed the leader of the free world? Or had it been a cabal determined to bring down America? As the theories took hold, investigators discovered that a crucial piece of the story was missing. The murdered president's brain. Hi, I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Welcome to Gone, the show where we search for everything missing. Every other Monday, we examine mysterious disappearances and the theories they spawned. From the Amber Room to Michael Rockefeller, Picasso paintings to the Etruscan language, the Roanoke Colony to the lost Russian cosmonauts. If it's gone, we're looking for it. You can find previous Gone episodes, as well as ParCast's other podcasts, on your favorite podcast directory. Some of you have been asking how you can support Gone. If you enjoy the show, the best way to support us is to leave a five-star review wherever you listen. In this episode, we're focusing on the murder of American President John Fitzgerald Kennedy and the subsequent disappearance of his brain during or after the autopsy. Believe it or not, JFK's brain wasn't buried with the assassinated president in 1963. And it hasn't been seen since 1965. Because this mystery is so huge, we wanted a little extra help with the search. Kate and Bill, the hosts of ParCast's newest podcast, Assassinations, are joining us in the studio to explore a mystery that started with the death of a president. Hello, Gone listeners. I'm Kate. And I'm Bill. On our podcast, Assassinations, we tell the stories of the most famous assassins of history and the men and women who were assassinated. Today, we'll be telling the parts of this story that center on JFK's assassination, while Molly and Richard focus on that incredibly important missing clue, JFK's brain. Thanks for having us on the show. Thank you both for being here. And let me say, Assassinations is a great podcast. If you enjoy this episode and want to learn more about the JFK assassination, as well as other assassinations that shaped history, you should search for Assassinations wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe. Yes, do not forget to subscribe because a new episode comes out every week. JFK's assassination was one of the great national traumas of the 20th century. And in the more than half century since, its role in popular memory has become as much about the conspiracy theories swirling around it as the murder itself. And so, in order to understand the mystery of how the president's brain went missing, we have to go back to the assassination itself to lay down the facts. 
While we will have to look into some of the conspiracy theories about the assassination, we should say right now that we're not going to get into every single one, or even most of them for that matter. No, today we're only going to give you as much as you need to know about those theories in order to understand what might have happened to JFK's brain. There are three prevailing theories about what could have happened. The first posits that JFK's brain was stolen by someone, probably within the government. The theft would have been an attempt to cover up a conspiracy that the ability to study the president's brain would expose, most likely the so-called second shooter theory. The second theory also suggests that the brain was hidden as part of a cover-up by being buried with the president instead of being publicly examined in order to hide a nefarious truth. The third theory is that Robert F. Kennedy, the president's younger brother, took the brain in order to protect JFK's legacy, maintain the privacy he famously guarded, and possibly even return it to the president's grave. To understand why any of this matters, and why some investigators still haven't stopped searching for JFK's brain, let's start with President Kennedy, both his political career and his assassination. John Fitzgerald Kennedy entered politics in 1946 as a congressman from Massachusetts' 11th District, a decorated war hero who had served in the Navy in the Pacific during World War II. He had originally planned to go into teaching, academia, or writing. But Jack, as he was called, came from a political family. His grandfather was a congressman, his father an ambassador. His older brother, Joe, was supposed to take the political mantle next. But when Joe died in World War II, the family expected Jack to run for office. And so he did. After three terms in Congress, he ran for Senate in 1952 at age 35 and won. By this point, he was already a popular national figure, and his popularity only grew. As the U.S. was coming out of the post-war era, the young, inspiring Democrat represented hope and change. When JFK ran for president in 1960, he ran on a message that looked to the future, one that moved forward from the old, staid, traditional establishment. And so, when he became the youngest president ever elected at age 43, he did so as a representative of a younger generation. His support for civil rights causes indicated a vision for a brighter future and a more equal United States. He and his glamorous wife, First Lady Jacqueline Bouvier Kennedy, shook things up in Washington and around the country, giving Americans a new image of what a president could be. Despite the country being in the midst of the Cold War, the future was starting to look bright. Of course, these changes also scared plenty of people too. Right-wing extremist groups, including the KKK, were vehemently against JFK, as were Soviet-backed communist organizations. And as JFK's Justice Department started to crack down on the white-collar crime that had run rampant for years, groups like the mob, which had been operating with impunity, began to fear for their existence. JFK represented a new way forward, and while that made him popular with most of the country and the world, it made him controversial as well. On November 22, 1963, two and a half years into his presidency, JFK and Jackie were in Dallas on a tour of Texas in anticipation of his re-election campaign. That day, 
the plan was for the president and first lady to accompany Governor Connolly of Texas and his wife on a drive through the city. When the four of them arrived at Dallas Love Field Airport, they were greeted by cheering crowds, and the president and first lady immediately broke from the schedule in order to greet people who'd come to see them. I appreciate your being here this morning. Mrs. Kennedy is organizing herself. It takes longer. But of course, she looks better than we do when she does it. But we appreciate your welcome. This city's been a great Western city. When it came time to get into the car, a little before noon, Kennedy instructed the Secret Service that he wanted the top on the car to be down. As usual, he wanted the Secret Service to stay off the back of the car, where they might sometimes stand for protection. This was part of Kennedy's philosophy and public persona. He wanted to seem as accessible to the people as possible. This was before the days of heavily armored cars for presidents. The security detail's primary concern was someone trying to approach the car. The streets of Dallas were jammed with people cheering and waving at the first couple. The city seemed thrilled to have them there. And then, at almost exactly 12.30 p.m., when the motorcade turned onto Elm Street at Dealey Plaza, shots rang out. We understand there has been a shooting. The presidential car coming up now. We know it's the presidential car. You can see Mrs. Kennedy's pink suit. There's a Secret Service man spread eagle over the top of the car. We understand Governor and Mrs. Connolly are in the car with President and Mrs. Kennedy. We can't see who has been hit, if anybody's been hit, but apparently something is wrong here. Something is terribly wrong. I'm in behind the motorcade now to follow them. It looks as though they're going to Parkland Hospital. The first shot seemed to hit the president in the neck. Two further shots rang out, one of which hit him in the back of the head, fatally wounding the president. The motorcade raced to Parkland Hospital, arriving there by 12.36 p.m. It took a moment for the Secret Service agents to be able to extricate the president from the first lady, who held him with his head cradled in her lap. Then, Kennedy was raced into the operating room, where an ever-increasing collection of doctors attempted to save his life. But they all knew that judging from the severe wound to his head, he was unlikely to survive. Parts of his skull were hanging off, and a chunk of his brain appeared to be missing. Indeed, Jackie Kennedy forced her way into the room and gave one of the doctors a piece of her husband's brain and skull that she'd found either on her lap or in the car. By 1 p.m., just before a Catholic priest, Father Oscar Huber, came in to administer last rites, the president was declared dead. Everyone in the room was bereft. While the doctors had been working to save JFK, they had only thought of him as a patient. Now, he was the murdered president. No one knew precisely what to do next. There wasn't a protocol in place for this particular situation. Mrs. Kennedy, along with JFK's personal physician, Admiral George Berkeley, the Secret Service detail, and the rest of the president's team wanted to get the body back to Washington, D.C. Someone managed to get a casket to transport JFK's body. Lyndon Johnson was aboard Air Force One at the airport waiting for them. But Texas law mandated that as the president's death had been a homicide, an autopsy had to be performed before his body could be released. It wouldn't take long, likely an hour or so. 
The medical examiner, Dr. Earl F. Rose, faced stiff opposition from a determined, grief-stricken majority. Jackie just wanted to get home. JFK's team wanted to deal with the rest of the situation back on familiar territory. Dr. Rose called the local Texas district attorney for backup, but the DA told him to make an exception, considering the circumstances. And so, the medical examiner was left with no choice but to let the body be moved without a post-mortem having been conducted. Aboard the plane back to Washington, Jackie refused to move from her post next to her husband's casket. But around her, the conversation about what to do with the body continued. There would still need to be an autopsy. The question was whether to go to Walter Reed Army Medical Center in D.C. or to Bethesda Naval Hospital in Bethesda, Maryland. To avoid further argument, the choice was left up to Jackie Kennedy. At first, she didn't understand why the body needed to go to a hospital at all. As far as the First Lady was concerned, Jack was dead, and the body should be prepared for a Catholic funeral. She didn't want anyone else cutting him open or dissecting him unnecessarily. Admiral Berkeley, thinking on his feet, told her it was so that they could find the bullet, though in fact he had no idea if the president's body contained a bullet or not. Convinced, Jackie opted for Bethesda Naval Hospital on the basis that her husband had been in the Navy. The decision made, Bethesda was notified and the doctors alerted. The doctors who would be performing the autopsy on Kennedy's body were Naval Commanders James Humes, the Director of Laboratories at the Naval Medical School, and J. Thornton Boswell, the Chief of Pathology at the Naval Medical School. While both men were experienced doctors who had performed countless autopsies, neither had trained in forensic pathology, that is, the study of determining the cause of death, especially in violent deaths, through an examination of a corpse. When Dr. Boswell was first alerted that the president's body was coming to Bethesda for the post-mortem, he reportedly objected. The Armed Forces Institute of Pathology, or AFIP, at Walter Reed seemed like a far better place, considering the expertise of their doctors. But by this point, Admiral Berkeley was insisting upon Jackie's choice of Bethesda, so it was non-negotiable. When JFK's body was laid on the autopsy table at Bethesda, there were nearly two dozen men in the room. Doctors and hospital staff, naval commanders, Secret Service, FBI, Admiral Berkeley, and a few members of Kennedy's staff. The room was chaotic, full of nervous energy. Berkeley impressed upon Humes and Boswell that Jackie Kennedy had only authorized a limited autopsy and that the goal was to return the body to the White House as quickly as possible. When it came to removing the president's brain, the task was relatively easy. Normally in an autopsy, a skull cap is cut and the brain removed through the crown of the head. But in this case, the large hole on the right side of the skull was big enough that what remained of JFK's brain could be removed without having to further cut into the skull. The doctors noted that while the left hemisphere of the brain was intact, the right hemisphere was badly damaged and missing a significant portion. As was procedure, the brain was fixed in formalin, that is, preserved using formaldehyde, and placed into a metal canister in order to preserve it for any further study. 
Around this time, a third doctor, Lieutenant Colonel Pierre Fink, a forensic pathologist from the AFIP at Walter Reed, arrived to assist Humes and Boswell at Humes' request. The three men continued their autopsy, but found themselves stymied when it came to the bullet. They found two entrance wounds, but presuming the gaping head wound was an exit wound, only one exit. They proposed doing a full-body x-ray and a complete autopsy rather than the authorized limited autopsy. Berkeley and the Kennedy team pushed back. The First Lady wanted the body back soon and in as good condition, that is, with as little dissection, as possible. A complete autopsy and an x-ray would take too long. Ultimately, the doctors were allowed to do a full-body x-ray, but the pressure was on. Unfortunately for them, the x-ray never revealed the missing bullet, prompting the doctors to initially conclude that it must have come out through the tracheotomy hole while the Parkland doctors attempted to save the president. In case you've never heard of a tracheotomy before, it's an emergency procedure that opens a direct airway to the lungs by putting a small hole and a tube into the windpipe. What the Bethesda doctors didn't realize until subsequent examinations and a conference with the Parkland doctors was that what they thought was a simple tracheotomy hole predated the procedure. In fact, that hole had initially been the exit wound for the first bullet. The Parkland doctors had simply expanded it in order to use it for the tracheotomy. Hence, the Bethesda doctors' confusion. When Humes, Boswell, and Fink finally reached satisfactory conclusions, JFK's body was prepared for burial. Three days after his tragic death, the president and the investigation into his assassination would finally be laid to rest. Or so they thought. We'll examine the meticulous manner in which JFK's body was handled and try to figure out how this brain possibly went missing in a few moments. Now, back to the story. On November 25, 1963, three days after his assassination, President John F. Kennedy's body was prepared for burial in Arlington National Cemetery. One area in which the medical examiners and the Kennedys were in agreement was the necessity of minimizing the number of artifacts that could become a spectacle. The sheets used to wrap the president's body were washed of blood, so they couldn't end up on display. Any other blood-stained objects not necessary to the investigation were disposed of. In keeping with this, and with the insistence upon burying JFK's body in as good a condition as possible, was the Kennedy family's request that the president be buried with his brain, a request that can't always be honored for victims of violent crimes. For whatever reason, the request wasn't honored for JFK either. Despite the fact that for most of those chaotic days, the Kennedys' wishes won out, the brain didn't make it back from Bethesda and into JFK's head in time for the funeral. Instead, the preserved organ stayed in the metal canister it had been placed in during the autopsy as the doctors hadn't yet been able to examine it any further. The precise date of the brain examination is hard to pin down. Over the decades since, the doctors have been unable to agree on specifically which day it was held, but it definitely happened within the week or so after the funeral. 
A good portion of the brain had been destroyed or left in pieces from the gunshot, but the doctors did the best with what they had. Normally in an autopsy, a brain would be thinly sliced and mounted on slides for further examination and possibly never returned to the family for burial. In the case of the examination of JFK's brain, some of these so-called cross-section slides were made, but the whole brain was not cut up. This was in keeping with the family's requests that his body remain as unmutilated as possible. And as for the results of the brain examination, nothing unexpected was found. Everything was in keeping with the analysis agreed upon by the Bethesda and Parkland doctors. Humes finally was able to return the brain to the White House and Admiral Berkeley by December 6, 1963, over 10 days after the funeral. He returned the brain, preserved in its stainless steel canister, along with the remaining materials from the autopsy, including x-rays, photographs, tissue samples, slides, and more. Instead of burying the brain and other remains with JFK at that point, quite possibly because it's not easy to simply reopen a president's grave, Berkeley left the brain and autopsy materials in the custody of Robert I. Bauck, the special agent in charge of the protective research section of the Secret Service. Berkeley later told a commission that he held on to the materials in case a later investigation might want them. Bauck then locked them in a Secret Service file cabinet safe closed with a combination lock in a room in the White House basement next to a control room used by the White House police. And there JFK's brain stayed, forgotten by most, even as the conspiracy theories that would come to haunt the assassination started to swirl. Theories about a second shooter, possibly protected by the CIA, or used to frame Lee Harvey Oswald, led to questions about the autopsy. What could JFK's brain or head have revealed with more thorough examination? Were the rumors of the president's health problems true? And if so, was someone trying to hide the truth? Everyone wanted to get to the bottom of the assassination. And there, locked away in the basement of the White House, was the last piece of evidence. In December 1963, a couple weeks after President Kennedy's assassination, the president's brain and remaining autopsy materials were locked away in a secure Secret Service cabinet at the behest of Admiral Berkeley. The brain stayed there for nearly a year and a half until April 22, 1965, when Robert Kennedy sent a letter to Admiral Berkeley instructing him to retrieve the autopsy-related materials and give them to Mrs. Evelyn Lincoln, JFK's former personal secretary. Mrs. Lincoln had been working in conjunction with the National Archives to transfer and log President Kennedy's official papers for them, so she was the natural person to take custody of the papers surrounding his death as well. On April 26, 1965, Berkeley and Agent Bauck delivered the brain and autopsy materials to Mrs. Lincoln at the archives in a secure footlocker. The last point on the itemized list that accompanied the locker was a box containing paraffin blocks of tissue sections of the brain, boxes of slides, and a seven by eight inch stainless steel container holding gross material, that is, the remains of JFK's brain. Needless to say, Mrs. Lincoln was disturbed and distraught 
by having the president's brain in her possession, and she claimed never to have opened the footlocker while it was in her custody in her office in the archives. Within a month after the brain and other autopsy materials were delivered to her, Mrs. Lincoln says she received a telephone call from Robert Kennedy. He told her that he was sending his personal secretary, Angela Novella, over to collect the footlocker. When Angela Novella arrived with Herman Kahn to remove the locker, Mrs. Lincoln gave them the only two keys, and that was the last she saw of it. She assumed they were taking it to another part of the archives, where Robert Kennedy had stored other materials. And they may well have done that. Or they may have taken it out of the archives entirely. The next time the footlocker surfaced, it was in October 1966, in the possession of a close family friend of the Kennedys, Burke Marshall. In the meantime, conspiracy theories had started to take root. Was the government's explanation that Lee Harvey Oswald, a disturbed young man, had been a lone wolf murderer really the truth? With Kennedy's death, something in the country shifted. His murder felt like an attack on the transparent, forward-thinking idea of America that he represented. Who would want to get rid of Kennedy and the vision of America he stood for? The mob? The Soviets and the Cubans? The CIA? Just two days after the arrest of Lee Harvey Oswald, Oswald was himself murdered while in police custody. People began to ask if it was a cover-up. Were shadowy and nefarious forces at work, pulling strings the people couldn't see? And if there were, what else were they doing? The American people had started to lose trust in their government. And so, in 1963, President Lyndon Johnson ordered a commission to convene in order to investigate the assassination and determine what happened. The Warren Commission, as it was called, wanted to collect every possible piece of evidence and requested that the Kennedy family give anything relevant over to the Justice Department. Burke Marshall, as a legal representative of the Kennedys, gave the footlocker full of autopsy-related materials over to the U.S. government under the condition that they be deposited, safeguarded, and preserved in the National Archives. Additionally, the family stipulated that the materials not be used in any undignified or sensational way that might dishonor the president's memory or be disrespectful to the family. This included not allowing anyone who had not been authorized by the family to access the materials until five years after the date of the letter and not putting any of the materials on public display while any of JFK's immediate family members were still alive. On October 31, 1966, Burke Marshall brought the footlocker back to the National Archives. Angela Novella brought both sets of keys and opened the locker for Marshall, the archivists, and a number of other government officials. On November 4, 1966, just a few days later, an inventory was made of the items that had been delivered in the footlocker. The list included everything on Berkeley's original 1965 list, except the box containing the tissue, slides, and brain. Sometime between April 26, 1965, and October 31, 1966, when the locker was first reopened, someone had taken JFK's brain and the other remaining tissues out of the locked footlocker. 
And as far as we know, they haven't been seen since. At first, while it was a mystery, no one was especially concerned about the repercussions of the disappearance. There were autopsy photographs, and the doctors from both Parkland and Bethesda had provided detailed notes. Short of disinterring the body, all the necessary evidence for breaking down the most minute details of the gunshot wounds was available for inspection. And this was enough for the Warren Commission, which had initially been convened to put the burgeoning conspiracy theories to rest. But many people felt that without JFK's brain or body, the commission was denied access to crucial evidence about the particulars of the shooting, and that its conclusion about Oswald being a lone wolf was too simple. And so, government commissions and investigations continued to be held for decades. And the question of what happened to JFK's brain continued to be explored. But none of the investigations were able to get an answer. No one seemed to have any idea what could have happened to the president's brain. One of these commissions was the House Select Committee on Assassinations, known as the HSCA, which was convened in 1976. The HSCA convened a panel of forensic pathologists to review autopsy materials and interview the doctors who conducted the post-mortem in order to determine if everything had been done properly or if anything had been missed. The panel ultimately concluded that while the autopsy should have been conducted by forensic pathologists, ideally at Walter Reed, doctors Humes, Boswell, and Fink had made the best of a bad situation. They should have insisted upon a full autopsy, even in the face of pressure from the Kennedy family, and they should have been more precise about the later brain examination. But as far as the autopsy was concerned, they'd done everything as correctly as possible. The only person on the panel who disagreed was Dr. Cyril Wecht. Dr. Wecht, an ambitious forensic pathologist, became convinced that something more nefarious was going on. One of the prevailing conspiracy theories surrounding JFK's assassination argues that, in fact, there were two shooters rather than just one. Sometimes, this conspiracy theory suggests that Lee Harvey Oswald was framed, that he wasn't involved at all, while more often, it posits that Oswald wasn't working alone. Perhaps, theorists argue, he was part of a larger conspiracy to kill the president, orchestrated by the mob, the Soviets, the Cubans, right-wing extremists, or possibly even the CIA. If a second shooter could be proven, this would suggest that the government had engaged in a cover-up to hide a larger conspiracy. The second shooter theory rests upon the idea that while Oswald was positioned in a building behind the president's car to his right, another shooter would have been ahead of the car on the so-called grassy knoll. While Oswald shot JFK from behind, his co-conspirator was supposed to have shot the president from the front. All of the doctors who examined JFK on November 22, 1963, maintained that there was only one bullet to the president's head, and another one that went through his upper back and neck. Both came from behind. The autopsy photographs bore this out as well. But still, the conspiracy theory persisted. And the problem was that, without disinterring the body, it couldn't be disproved. And disinterring a dead president was never going to happen. 
especially if the Kennedys had anything to say about it. When Dr. Weck discovered that JFK's brain hadn't been buried with a body, he believed that it could be the crucial piece of evidence to finally, definitively answer the question once and for all. After all, the preserved brain should show whether it had been struck by one bullet or two. And that knowledge would clear up whether or not the government had engaged in a massive cover-up about the details of the assassination and open a whole new can of worms about whether Oswald had been framed or had been working with someone else. But what did it mean that the brain had mysteriously disappeared while being kept in the National Archives? Our first theory is Weck's theory, which is that someone stole JFK's brain from the secure locker in order to keep this last crucial piece of evidence from getting out. According to Wecht, someone was hiding something. Someone who could get access to well-protected areas of U.S. government buildings and somehow unlock a secure footlocker with only two keys in existence. Could it be the CIA? Rumors swirled about how the spy agency hadn't been entirely forthcoming with the Warren Commission and had perhaps even lied and destroyed evidence, especially relating to Lee Harvey Oswald. To this day, Wecht, who's worked on a number of high-profile forensic cases over the years, maintains that, should the brain be found, it could answer the lingering questions around JFK's death. But where is the brain? Even Wecht doesn't have any idea. He clearly believes it wasn't destroyed, since he hasn't given up hope yet. But if someone really did want to cover up a truth badly enough to steal JFK's preserved brain, what would stop them from destroying it? Wouldn't the safe assumption be that the thief or thieves stole the brain and destroyed it in order to keep the evidence of a second shooter or some other conspiracy from getting out? What if JFK's brain really is gone forever? We'll continue our search for the missing brain after this break. Now, back to the story. Conspiracy theories abound that in 1965, John F. Kennedy's brain was stolen from the National Archives to cover up the truth about his assassination. What if, though, the conspirators got to the brain long before 1965? What if they'd never had to steal it at all? This brings us to our second theory, which suggests that the conspiracy to conceal the president's injuries meant that JFK had actually been buried with his brain. The chief proponent of this theory is Douglas P. Horn, who was the chief analyst for military records on the Government Convened Assassination Records Review Board, or ARRB, established in 1994. Horn was already an assassination conspiracy theorist before joining the ARRB, a fact that's often overlooked by those covering the panel and its findings. Prior to the ARRB, Horn had been a proponent of the conspiracy theory that JFK's body had been stolen and his wounds altered prior to the autopsy. Subsequently, during the ARRB, he revised his theory to argue that JFK was actually buried with his brain and that any subsequent brain examinations were done on a brain that was not his. The point of this, he suggests, was to hide the evidence of the actual brain injuries. 
The problem is that there's little evidence to back this theory up. It seems to rest almost entirely upon the testimony of the autopsy photographer, John Stringer, for the ARRB in 1996, more than 30 years after the events in question. Stringer was asked if he remembered how the brain was cut during the examination. He knew his memory was fallible after 30 years, but he answered to the best of his abilities. He replied, If I remember, it was in cross-sections, end quote. But since the Bethesda doctors claimed to have done just a few cross-section cuts of the brain and left the rest of it as whole as possible, Horn seized upon this discrepancy. Having two different reports now as to how the brain was cut, he decided that perhaps two brain examinations were done, one before the burial and one after. And perhaps Stringer, the photographer, hadn't been present at the second one. Horn suggested that if the first brain examination had been done before the funeral, JFK's brain could have been buried with his body. And so any crucial evidence that would point to a second shooter or any other deviation from the government's official story would have been hidden forever. Horn theorized that the conspiracy was deeper than anyone thought and that a number of people in the government and military had been involved in an elaborate deception in order to hide specifically how JFK had died. The most likely reason in his mind was the second shooter theory. But whatever the reason, Horn figured that anyone who would go to such lengths must have a lot to hide. Of course, the only way to find out if the brain had been buried with the body and what secrets it was hiding would again be disinterment, which wasn't going to happen. And Horn never did theorize about whose brain might have been at the second examination. But there is a third theory, one that relies not upon conspiracy theories, but rather on circumstantial evidence, hearsay, and one bizarre photo. One that suggests that the Kennedys took the brain. Let's take at face value the accounts of the chain of custody of the brain in 1965 and 1966. The brain and other autopsy materials were given to Mrs. Lincoln in April 1965 in a secure footlocker. And then, within the month, she handed those over to Angela Novella, Robert Kennedy's personal secretary. And then, in October 1966, the footlocker reappeared in the possession of close Kennedy family friend and representative Burke Marshall. That suggests that between April 1965 and October 1966, the footlocker was probably in the Kennedy family's possession. Barring a break-in by someone who somehow managed to get the keys and was looking for something very specific, which seems highly unlikely, the evidence suggests that the brain would most likely have been removed by someone in the Kennedy family or one of their close confidants. The person who should have had the answer was Angela Novella. After all, she was the one who both retrieved the footlocker from Mrs. Lincoln's office in the National Archives and opened it for the government officials and Marshall when it returned a year and a half later. And she had worked for Robert Kennedy for years. But when Novella was later asked by the HSCA, she claimed to have no recollection of the footlocker whatsoever, much less having moved it, opened it, or ever looked inside. Of course, no one believed her. 
A number of people had been present when she had opened it at the National Archives in October 1966. Was her memory simply going, or was she intentionally lying? And if so, why was she lying? Who was she covering for? The HSCA interviewed more than 30 people in the Kennedy Circle about the brain's disappearance. People like Novella, who should have had at least some knowledge of the locker, its contents, and the disappearance. And every single one of them swore they had no knowledge of it whatsoever. It's not much of a leap to guess that they might have been protecting someone. Probably someone in the Kennedy family who chose not to give the president's brain to the U.S. government in 1966. But who? And why? And what did they do with it? To understand why the Kennedys might not have wanted to hand over the last remaining part of JFK's body to the government, and by extension, the public, we once again have to return to JFK himself. Remember how Kennedy was a youthful, hopeful president? A vision of a bright future for the country? Well, that was an image he had carefully cultivated in order to represent that to the people. Because in reality, Jack Kennedy was seriously ill. Kennedy was a sickly child, and he grew into a sickly adult. It wasn't until he was diagnosed with Addison's disease, an autoimmune disorder that causes problems with the adrenal glands, that he started to receive treatments that improved his health and quality of life. But even after that, he continued to be ill. He had a host of other health problems, which caused him to be anemic and in chronic pain. Publicly, his health problems were chalked up to a back injury and a bout of malaria from his time serving in the Pacific during World War II. And while both of those were true, they were only a small piece of the truth. Indeed, JFK experienced so much back and hip pain that he often wore a corset-like back brace in order to get him through long days walking and sitting. He was, in fact, wearing the brace the day he was shot. Some investigators have suggested that, were it not for the brace holding him upright, he likely would have slumped forward after the first shot, and thus avoided the second fatal one. In addition to the brace and the treatments for his various diseases, President Kennedy was also on a lot of pain medication, drugs that these days we recognize to be dangerously addictive stimulants and painkillers. While the long-term effects weren't known at the time, there was certainly still a stigma surrounding those drugs. Not only were the Kennedys fiercely protective of the image of Jack's health, but both the President and First Lady carefully cultivated every aspect of the image they projected. Despite being on the biggest public stage imaginable, they were intensely private. The world was only allowed to see what they wanted seen. Take, for example, Jackie Kennedy's CBS special, in which she gave a tour of the newly renovated White House on national television. While ostensibly letting the curious public into the first family's life, she actually let on very little personal information. Instead, she kept the focus on the White House as the people's house, simultaneously endearing her family to viewers who felt an unprecedented level of access to the first family. Both Jackie and JFK knew the importance of appearances as evidenced by the president's insistence that he appear accessible to the people when touring cities by motorcade. After JFK's death, Jackie went to great lengths to cement his legacy, 
modeling his state funeral on Abraham Lincoln's and, through subsequent interviews, famously weaving a narrative of their time in the White House as an idyllic Camelot. The rest of the Kennedy family was as private and image-conscious as the first couple. As a political dynasty led by Jack's father and grandfather, the Kennedys strictly controlled press access and the narrative presented to the public. All of this is to say that the Kennedy family's insistence that JFK's body be kept intact and buried quickly was very much in keeping with their intense privacy, as was their concern that no items related to the assassination be sensationalized or displayed. And considering JFK's numerous health problems, it makes sense that they didn't want his body and brain being examined too closely by too many people, lest the deception be exposed. They might also have been concerned that his brain could contain some evidence of the drugs or autoimmune disorder, though most experts agree that that would have been unlikely. But the family might not have known that. All the same, when JFK's brain was finally returned to Bobby Kennedy in 1965, after the family had requested that it be buried with the president in 1963, it seems only logical that they wouldn't have given it to the U.S. government in 1966. In fact, what seems most likely is that they figured out a way to bury the brain and other autopsy remains with the body. The question is if there's any proof. On the evening of March 14, 1967, less than six months after the footlocker had been given over to the government, the Kennedy family and a handful of their close friends gathered at Arlington Cemetery for a private ceremony. JFK's body was being reinterred to be buried with two of his children who had died in infancy and had originally been buried elsewhere. The press was not allowed, so little is known about the ceremony. But there is a photograph of Robert and Edward Kennedy at the ceremony, standing between Arlington Cemetery's eternal flame and a strange box. No one seems to know what the box was for or what, if anything, was in it. Reports about whether or not something was added to JFK's grave differ. John Metzler, the superintendent of Arlington Cemetery, said he didn't remember seeing anyone add anything to the grave. But Frank Mankiewicz, Robert Kennedy's close friend and press secretary, who had been at the ceremony, had a different story. He reportedly told Robert Tannenbaum, who was involved with the HSCA, that Bobby had put his brother's brain in the coffin. Of course, he later denied having said that. Mankiewicz also reportedly told G. Robert Blakey, who was on the HSCA, that Edward Kennedy had seemed to confirm that the brain had been buried with the body at the reinterment. But when asked about it later, he said he didn't remember either having said that or Edward Kennedy having indicated it to him. Did the box that the two remaining Kennedy brothers had with them at the reinterment contain JFK's brain? Had they managed at last to bury it with the president's body? Burke Marshall, who had been in charge of giving the footlocker to the government on behalf of the Kennedys, differed slightly in his opinion. In 1979, he told the HSCA that he believed Robert Kennedy had taken the brain, along with the remaining tissue and slides, and somehow disposed of them without informing anyone else. Marshall claimed, quote, 
Robert Kennedy was concerned that these materials would be placed on public display in future years in an institution such as the Smithsonian and wished to dispose of them to eliminate such a possibility, end quote. So whether the brain was disposed of or buried with JFK's body, this theory argues that the Kennedys took the brain while it was in the footlocker and made sure the public never got a hold of it. The evidence is mostly circumstantial and supposition, but nothing apart from personal denials directly contradicts it. Yes. Considering the evidence, it seems most likely that Bobby Kennedy, either on his own or with someone else's help, took the brain out of the footlocker while it was in his possession. Whether he disposed of it or returned it to JFK's grave is harder to say. I agree. It seems like the most likely theory, especially considering that the other options rely upon conspiracy theories and outlandish suppositions. If only we could ask RFK himself. His shocking assassination on June 5th, 1968, represented another tragedy for the country and the Kennedy family. Not only that, it also means that we'll never have a definitive answer on whether or not he took his brother's brain. Unless, of course, someone else who's still alive knows something. But until then, the speculation and the search will continue. Thanks for tuning in to Gone. If you want to find more episodes or any of ParCast's other podcasts, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. You can also tell us your theories on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast, on Twitter at Parcast Network, or at ParCast.com. Thanks again to Bill and Kate for joining us today. Thanks for having us. If you'd like to hear about other assassinations throughout history, you can find our show, Assassinations, wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for letting us dig into this story with your listeners. It was great having you join us. Let's do it again sometime. Many of you have asked us how you can help us. Well, if you enjoy Gone or Assassinations, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode of Gone. Just because it's gone doesn't mean it can't be found. Gone and Assassinations were created by Max Cutler, are a production of Cutler Media, and are part of the Parcast Network. They are produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. This episode was written by Kate Thorman and stars Molly Brandenburg, Richard Rossner, Kate Leonard, and Bill Thomas.